Welcome to the Carl Andrew Record Club. Hi, we are a music podcast from the rights Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike, along with everyone's favorite co-host of the pod, Mootlu. Oh, oh, hey, hey, hey. So good to be here. Thank you, guys. Thank you. No, you're too much. Thanks. Oh, thanks. boy. Jeez, it's oh, amazing. Oh, what a gee, great studio audience whiz, once again. Gee whiz. Yeah. Oh, man. We are a uh, music appreciation podcast. I'm happy that you're joining us. We we talk about a couple of albums on most episodes, and those albums are usually one a, a favorite of mine or Mutlu's and a favorite from a listener. So you can suggest one by going to carlandryrecordclub.com, tweeting us at CLRC Pod, or leaving it in the Apple Podcast reviews. Um, just you know, leave your review, leave five stars. If you leave anything less than five stars, I'm not picking your album. By the way, what a what an insult that would be. Can you imagine a, yeah. a three star review and then an album no, suggestion? That's never getting picked. Never. No. Come on. Jeez. I'll, not only that, I'll I'll find your IP address. I'll target you. I'll he target will, you. Yeah. He'll yeah. he'll he'll you'll be. It's a person. That's not. It's not just that you're put off by it. It's a personal vendetta. Yeah. It's an affront. It's an right. affront. So today's today's pod about two albums. It is my week, so I picked Matthew Sweet's 100% Fun, which came out in 95. And then the listener album is Everclear's So Much for the Afterglow, which came out in 97. Listener album comes from Twitter user Rotator Interval. I feel like we've done a lot of 90s recently, and what it is, maybe I, maybe I have to fight it back, and maybe I don't have to fight it back, because what it's doing is making me want to pick more 90s stuff. Like, um, I, I think, not that I forgot about the decade, but the deeper I dive into it, the more I, I want to keep diving because it, I think from a, I love the music, but from an emotional standpoint, I had forgotten how many of this album, how many of these albums remind me of certain times, you know? Yeah, and it's interesting that we're far enough removed from that era that we can, I don't think like until recently I thought oh '90s that's like the '90s era you know like, like you think about the '70s or '80s but now now I'm realizing there's such a specific character yeah to that era especially like the early mid '90s mm-hmm. and especially with hip hop and especially with these kind of sort of rock or pop rock kind of records you know uh, it's weird because those records hold up to me mm-hmm. they don't seem as dated as some things that I hear from the '80s but there just you hear some there's like some gen x energy that just comes through well and i think i think there's so many bands now that grew up with this as a you know like in their formative years i was a we were a little bit older right like you know i was i graduated high school in 94 so this stuff was really important to me but you hear I, i remember like the first moment that i heard Nirvana in like Seether or something like you, when you hear these bands in other bands where we're talking about Sunny Day Real Estate and you s- talk about emo music now and, and pop punk music now all that and you're, you're hearing the influence of these bands whereas like when you and I were hearing these bands we were hearing the influence of Sabbath or Zeppelin or right. punk but now we're hearing the influence of the influence which I think makes it all the more interesting you know and it's crazy to me that in the classic rock format, now you hear some of these bands. Yeah. So you'll hear early, mid-90s yeah. rock staples in classic rock. And I'm like, that's just, that's strange to me that it's veering towards like almost an oldies 
Well, dude, never mind. Now. It's 30 years old. I know. That just doesn't <laughs> seem right. It just doesn't seem right. Yeah. And I, I would, I would be also be remiss to mention to welcome aboard the, the Carl now is, this is episode, I think 75 or 76 or somewhere in there. We welcome a, another member of the, the Carl family as we have a producer. So welcome Molly, who will not only be able to add things to the pod and ideas and bands, but able to, uh, I think, I think from a, a youthful standpoint, be able to tell us about music yeah. and things that we don't expand, quite know about. Yeah, right. Expand our sort of uh, our viewpoints, our musical horizons. So great to great to have Molly on board. Molly's Molly's a funny origin story, but I think the 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 best moment I ever I, I remember is when I had mentioned the band Limp Bizkit to her, and she. It's one thing to not know the songs, but it's another thing to not have any cultural awareness of the band like have never even heard of it didn't know what it was and that is a boy it just it shows it shows now more than ever because you, you couldn't have okay imagine this let's go back to let's go back to like 95 right and let's say you had a person in their 20s who really really loved music there was no way that that person wouldn't have any awareness of say zeppelin or something but now because of the way that culture is and how segmented everything is there is the ability to not be aware of those things i, I mentioned molly it reminded me when billy eilish had no awareness of van halen right and, and here's Billy Eilish, who's like fucking brilliant, right? Like a brilliant musician and just no awareness. And it's just sort of like a wild thing to me. And know? I think it's it's just like you said, it's more a reflection of how media is consumed now. Think about it. There's so much more music now. Oh, yeah. Than there ever was before. I mean, the crazy thing to me, I'll take it on a more micro level, is there are bands that have no airplay no national press, nothing, no commercial push whatsoever who will show up in certain markets and sell a few thousand tickets. And yeah. there's any number of genres that you can say that about. That right there speaks to the fact that it's just changed. It's vast. It's more fragmented. And uh, it was different in the 90s when, when, you know, when we were kind of first discovering music. It's sort of like the idea of the punk and indie aesthetic has sort of grown into like all of culture seems that way in that yeah. like the way to succeed, you know, 30 years ago from a commercial standpoint is to get as many casual fans as you could. But now it seems as if, if you can sort of target and get, you know, a, a 20th of that, but have them fucking love you and be dedicated to you, then you can have this career that, for some people, for the people that love you is everything. And for other people, there's zero awareness whatsoever. And right. you see it happening with TV too, right? I mean, like the most popular TV show in the world today, let's take Big Bang Theory, is just in terms of audience is just a fraction of what it was 25 years ago. But there's all of these under the radar shows that people, not under the radar, but just sort of like these shows that people love that don't hit the same audience number, but but are successful nonetheless. It's just such a different different world than it was. Yeah, and again, with television and films, same exact thing. That, mm -hmm. like, there are shows, I don't know, on Hulu or Netflix or Apple TV, whatever, that I've never heard of that have name actors. Mm -hmm. And I've never heard of them, and they have an audience. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, so... One show that I think is people are catching on to that I'll just give a plug for 
maybe in the future Apple TV will. I know what you're going to say. Can I guess? Severance. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, I knew it, that's where you. Did you see it? Have you watched I, it? Yeah, we just finished the season of Severance. It is certainly, certainly right it, up my alley and, man, and really it's, good. It's something else. It's just. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I've seen that concept done. I don't want to give anything away, but I'm not sure I've seen that concept done in quite that way before. Uh, I've never. It's unique. It's unique. It is one of the darkest and weirdest, slowest television shows that you'll you'll ever see. Even even just visually, pretty yeah. dark. You know, especially when they're not in the office or whatever. It's a, a a great show. But yes, it's a when you think of a show like that would have never existed twenty five years ago. No. Would have would never had the ability to have the audience. And when you talk about it being popular, I remember this ha- happened with Mad Men. When I, when I loved Mad Men and it seemed to me like everybody loved Mad Men and it seemed like a successful show, but you looked at the audience numbers and the audience numbers were super tiny. The, the number of people who, have, who watch Severance is v- relatively small compared right. to what a successful show would have been, but this is, you can be a success that way. So yeah, it's a great show. You wanna start talking about the tunes? Yeah. You want to get into the tunes? Yeah, let's get into it. Let's just, you want to start with mine? I don't want to, oh, wait a minute, look at this. I have a nickel here. Oh. You, know, you know what that means? An that, actual coin flip. We flip it. We flip okay. it. Okay. So you have the listener album, so you're going to call it in the air. All right? All right. All right. It is, there. Heads. i show you. It is tails. There you it go. It is tails. Moot can see me right now. You can't see me, but Moot can see me. So we'll go with Matthew Sweet, 100% fun. Man, one of my favorites. Both of these bands, and we'll get to it a little bit later, lyrically are the opposite of what we've talked about a bunch of times. And I think you would you would concur in a lot of ways. So Matthew Sweet, singer-songwriter from Lincoln, Nebraska, who is mostly identified with Athens, Georgia, as he moved there in the 80s to go to college, University of Georgia. He actually started... It got the bug for all of this in high school, was in bands, started recording himself on a, a four track when he was in high school. And then he gets to Athens in the 80s. And that was like quite a scene in Athens, Georgia. And he actually, so one of the band, that I, probably the band most famous from Athens, Georgia is R.E.M., and Matthew Sweet actually had a, once he gets to Georgia, has a project, had like a side project, Michael Stipe did with Matthew Sweet in the early to mid eighties while Michael Stipe was in REM called Community Trolls, a, uh, a sort of a singer songwriter thing. Um, while, while Stipe was in REM, there are a few songs out there. They did shows together. And Matthew Sweet also ends up in Michael Stipe's sister's band called OOK. So Matthew Sweet plays guitar in Michael Stipe's sister's band and actually has a side project with Michael Stipe. Well, I, not to get ahead of it, but there are a few songs on here where he just sounds so much like Michael Stipe, doesn't he? I mean, something about his delivery, his cadence. I, I, I I'm not surprised because I know he's part of that whole Athens, right, uh, Georgia thing. But it's it's interesting to me. I it kind of blows my mind that they were actually in bands together. It's like, man, this just reminds me of Michael Stipe and REM in general. So it's funny you say that because I did not think that. This, this as a, an album in my 
I know these are supposed to be our favorite albums, but some of them are more favorite than mine. So one than than others are. One hundred percent fun sits in the the pantheon of of albums for me that I've listened to so much. And I had never even thought that until I listened to it. Um, so I think like his phrasing and his sound as a vocalist, I think them as even some of the the sounds of them as bands are similar. I think the approach lyrically couldn't be more different. Yeah, I think, there's you certain know? elements that are completely different. It's more a musical thing. Yes, for sure. Or even sure. a vocal thing, even more yep. specifically. Absolutely. He So he for, he puts his first solo album out called Inside, which comes out in 86, uh, independently released. Then he gets signed to A&M. He puts out his first solo album on a big record label called Earth. It fails pretty epically, it, it, I guess would be a, an overstatement in that I'm, I'm not sure they expected a ton of it, but he gets dropped from A&M. He gets divorced. He regroups, gets a new band, and then puts together an album which ends up being called Girlfriend, which a song on it ends up being called Girlfriend, which, you know, you can tell it's the same artist when you listen to, I've never heard Inside, but when you listen to Earth, you can tell it's the same artist. But the, I guess the the Fender rock and roll sound that ends up being part of Girlfriend and part of 100% Fun definitely was part of being with these other musicians and refocusing what his sound would be. Girlfriend's an incre incredible record. That out, that song ends up being a pretty reasonable hit on MTV and his career sort of takes off from there. It is interesting to note that in, he puts out another album in between Girlfriend and 100% Fun called Altered Beast that did not do well at all really sort of gets forgotten, but then um, then comes back with 100% fun. To describe Matthew Sweet and describe the sound of this album, it is like that alt power pop that, that was a thing that is very 90s, but holds up very well today. I think I've compared him to Butch Walker a lot. They sit in the same part of my brain. I think, you know, Matthew Sweet sort of stays a little more true to the power pop thing than, than Butch Walker does, but incredibly written songs and uh, driving guitars. And the, I would say the difference with Matthew Sweet sonically is you hear Beach Boys a lot in there. You hear Beatles, of course you hear, you know, Big Star, like the, those sorts of bright poppy tones are, are pretty laid throughout these this album. I'm trying to think, oh, so 100% Fun, the title of the album, actually comes from Kurt Cobain's suicide note, which at the end of the note, I, I should have had it in front of me. He indicates, it's one of the last things in the note, indicates he could never be one of those people having 100% fun all the time. And the, I found a couple of interviews from 95 when the album came out. And Sweet said, it struck me as a sad thing that anyone would expect to have 100% fun. I thought, wow, that's kind of a high standard. It helped me see it helped me see the phrase as a little more melancholy. It took on this sad, wistful quality. What is a hundred percent fun? Whoever has it and does it last? Another a separate interview. I think it was from the L.A. Times. He said, "I get a lot of people saying to me in interviews that this kind of music never sells. And isn't it hard being a pop guy living in today's world?" 
It hasn't been since the 60s that this has been real mainstream, the birds, big star kind of thing. For me, it's just who I am and where I am. And I don't think it has limitations and the freedom of writing what you like and doing what you're into. And to think about the 90s, which we have talked about, and the idea of like aiming for popularity wasn't something you were supposed to be obvious about. And I think writing poppy things was almost frowned upon maybe in the mid 90s when this came out. As much as this reminds us in the 90s, the grunge era, like this coming on the heels of the grunge era is not really what music was about at the time. And I think you had to like somehow temper it with other things. Yeah. If you were super poppy, yep. you had to somehow, and that happens here, something in the production, something about your attitude, and vibe and energy had to show that you weren't too overtly mainstream. That that kind of ethos doesn't really exist anymore, I don't think. No. And and uh, no, like being there's nothing wrong with being popular now. You know, in fact, I would say that more than ever, critics like the even like the idea of talking critically about Taylor Swift or Justin Timberlake is totally normal. Like it, not, not critically in that you're criticizing them, but almost like they are lifted up to the same level of bands like Arcade Fire or something like that. Somebody who is like an indie darling pop, pop music is, is in the same sort of world that that is, but that was not at the time. The album to me is maybe has one or two misses on it, but every song pretty incredible. Now I mentioned at the top lyrically being sort of different than some of the things we've talked about. One of the things that you talk about a lot is the showing and not telling thing. It seems like there's a lot of telling on this album in that, like, and it seems impersonal. Like when we were talking about Gang of Youth, Dave Leo Pepe writes incredibly personal, you know, singular lyrics that can be applied to many different things in a, in a, like, in a super applicable way. The lyrics for Matthew Sweet seem almost purposefully vague and not vague in that you don't know what it's talking about, but vague in that it could apply to anyone at any time. Do you, there's, do you there's a certain that? mystery to it. It's right. uh, and I think it's meant to be that way. And sometimes the musical energy around it seems to kind of fit that in a way. Mm-hmm. It opens up with the first single on the album, which did really well, a song called sick of myself that brings me back to being in college. Absolutely. idea that he said, I don't think about it a lot, but then I thought it would be funny to put sick of myself as the first song on hundred percent fun. In a way it applies to my life where I get sick of myself and the loneliness of everything. On the other hand, I'm my own best friend and it's not like I hate myself or anything. The song's not about hating yourself. It's about this person who sees this other person who's really fresh and maybe beautiful or young and whatever. And in them, they see the thing, they see this thing that is kind of old or used up in themselves, but it's not really about me which I thought was interesting too, reminded me of uh, Liz Fair writing a, an album about around the same time, writing lyrics that you feel like are personal and that you can relate to, but that are not about you at all. You know, That's a real, that's a skill to be able to do that. Because I remember on that record, that was a revelation to me, her album that 
these all sounded like very specific personal songs, and apparently it was just she was a, kind of a character she made up. Yeah, I think it's yeah. interesting that both those records are kind of identified with this time, mm-hmm. and it's a yeah, certain sure. '90s thing. I, I can't. It's hard to put like your finger on it exactly. You know, the tone on the guitar is pretty signature. I'm, I don't know what he was playing at the time, but when I saw him play four or five years ago, interestingly, he was playing a Fender Jaguar, which is what. Cobain played, you know, now Cobain's guitar was modified in, you know, in such a way that they've released like a Cobain style guitar. But I do think it's funny that these bright sort of surf tones that come out of Matthew Sweet were the same, same kind of instrument that Cobain was using and the music feels so different, but came out at the same time, you know? But there's still some of the the fuzz. I, I, yeah, there's some of the fuzz or there's something in it that's that's more subtle, but that I, I see a thread. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It doesn't yeah. have the angst that the Cobain songs have, and the songs are written in a very different way, but there's something in there. You see a little bit of a musical thread, I think. It's it's like you said, maybe the fuzz, maybe certain tones that you hear, or even some of the, the way the production or the mixes sound. There's a, a few other songs that I'll bring up, and feel free if they were on your list to 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 mention we're the same is i mentioned beach boys the sort of falsetto hook and i i think it i think you you hear the surf rock and we're the same as well and i think the lyrics in that it's just a love song love song lyrics but I think is amazing hook and an amazing song and then the other two one of them completely different I actually think that they these are really interesting songs that are on this album the one the other one is walk out which has is later in the album has a is an up-tempo sort of pointed song that I, I don't think exists anywhere else in the album that sort of a I don't want to say angsty but not you know dreamy staring into somebody's eyes tune Moon, which almost seems like a song that almost doesn't even belong on this album with lyrics that are almost sort of like radio head, you know? There's a smog moon coming, I can always feel it. The cartoon trees cannot conceal it. There's a it seems like something that, that Tom York would write, not not Matthew Sweet, but is a what a what a way for the album to go out. There's a smog moon in the sky wavering and burning like a golden light I fell so far I didn't think I'd make it back all made 
again, this record has some unexpected like pivots like that. Mm-hmm. Like about midway through, you get lost my mind. Yeah. That that one is kind of psychedelic, spaced out. All of a sudden, it kind of shifts for a brief spell there. Yeah, I don't think that there's a wave of music that was ever influenced that you could say, oh, that came from Matthew Sweet. But here is a guy who continues to this day to churn out albums, um, to help produce. He's become a a producer as well and just an incredible songwriter. And the fact that his career is still going never became like this massive star or anything, but is interesting to me that he just keeps making album after album after album and you know, and, and continues to write and, and have all these songs in his head. Just a, an amazing, amazing musician, an amazing record that reminds me of a certain time and a certain place. Were you ever aware of him? Was this, were you going in blind or? No, I, I had some awareness of him, but never really had like done much of a deep dive or anything. Mm-hmm. So this album was definitely kind of a revelation for me because like you said, there's very few misses on this one. Sick of myself, kind of a couple of the songs you covered. That one just shows like he has undeniable pop songwriting chops, you know? Yeah. He just, he goes for it. He goes for the big hooks, you know? But the, the lyrics are, like you said, they're a little more mysterious. That you don't, they're not always visual. There's some, they're kind of almost extreme like of consciousness, maybe sometimes, or just kind of fragments, which I think with what he does musically, works and then uh, one of the songs I really liked on here was uh, Giving It Back oh yeah kind of channels and updates the sort of mid-60s like Beatles sound. He, he he minds a very specific territory, I think, when you think of the Beatles' influence. It's not the early Beatlemania and not no. exactly the later White Album or Abbey Road. It's like Road Revolver kind of. almost. Or Rubber Soul Revolver. Rubber Soul, yeah. Exactly. Which yeah. That, that is probably my favorite era of the Beatles. It's the sweet spot. Right in between their sound was evolving and they were getting more adventurous, but still very tightly crafted songs before they went off on more of the sonic experiments or kind of white album is like three solo albums, basically, you know, but I love that era. And then I looked at, it, I looked at the discography and I was thinking this song and I think maybe, uh, maybe a couple others, giving it back a couple others, put me in that sort of rubber soul revolver place. He's done three different covers albums with Susanna Hoffs. yeah. Yeah, and, from Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles. Yes, from the Bangles, yeah. exactly. And right when this, you know, Spotify algorithm uh, world, as soon as this record finished, it queued up and your bird can sing from that. Ah. So I was like, you know what? Like it, it read my, like I was kept thinking Rubber Soul Revolver, maybe even more Soul Revolver. And then the song that is just like put me in that mindset when I was listening to a couple of these tunes is what comes up. And they do a great version of it. It's really kind of cool to hear the sort of male-female vocal counterpart 
on that one, you know, as opposed to the original is a classic, of course, but uh, not, and not exactly an saw, obvious Beatles cover either, you know. I saw Susanna Hoffs at Lilith Fair. I remember seeing Lilith Fair at. Didn't they? Did they just rename the friggin' Blockbuster Tweeter uh, something? Center now it's like Morgan Riverfront, something. Like, yeah. uh, who knows? It's it's kind of it's 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 does not like roll off the tongue. It does not. I flip. remember seeing Susanna Hoffs at Lilith Fair at that venue. I think Sarah McLaughlin and Cheryl Crow may have headlined. It was a a good show. Yet, it's interesting you mentioned that song as being Beatles reminiscent. I actually hear early Stones in that song a little bit too, which is yeah. right about the same time, you know, and right about, you know, people talk about whether the Beatles or the Stones are the greatest rock band ever. I, I do think there is a time at which they they don't occupy the same space musically, but there are more similarities between those bands at that time than you would have guessed. You know it's, what I mean? It's sort of like mid sixties. Right. There's a sound. Sixty five, sixty six, mid sixties, British invasion. There were probably any number of other bands that you could just pick from that era that kinda had that sound. It's sort of a there's like a jangly quality to some of those records, but mm-hmm. uh but it's not just like polished like pop music. You know, there's you hear the guitars. The guitars have some like grit to them. It's it's almost like great songwriters who started doing drugs but didn't do so many drugs that it ruined their lives yet. Right. They were in the early funny. stage of their drug use. Which yeah. It was the it was the vibrant time, the inspiring time, you know? Yeah, where they were opening up parts of their brain. Like that part of the drug use. Oh, I never thought of that before before it went you know, before kind of it went sideways. crazy. Yeah. Amazingly, the Stones somehow, I think, the late 60s Stones is the best Stones, but um, the, the fact that they were able to continue on for as long as they did, you know, when you're comparing them to the Beatles, I mean, Stones still fucking play concerts, which is, which is bananas. But the fact that they were able to last through that stage and then persevere after it is pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, Mick Jagger... He's a force of nature, right? I mean, uh, I he does like this heavy workout uh, <laughs> regimen before every tour. He's like 75, 76, and you see clips of him. He's still running all over the stage. I mean, uh, you know, it's like he's like gearing up for like if someone's swim meet or a track meet or a bicycle race or something like he trains like that yeah, all the to time. Get, yeah, to get ready for the Stones shows, you know. I if. It is, I don't know if it was popular. Do you remember the Mick Jagger solo album, Goddess in the Doorway, that came out in the early 2000s? I don't know if I know that. I feel like his solo records always just kind of came and went, right? So there was a song on there. Now I'm going to, you know, I I like doing this. Is uh, We didn't plan on this. But there's a song on there called Visions of Paradise. That's so good. So he had a bunch of you know, featurings on this album. It was almost like the Santana before Santana. Remember when Santana did that, uh, started doing solo albums, had, obviously has the song with, um, with uh, Rob Thomas that ended up being big. Let's see if you remember this at all. This is a good album, Goddess in the Doorway. Don't tell me when something is beautiful. Do you remember this at all or no? No. Wow, this don't I'm a big Stones fan, but to talk to my I want to see who else was on this song. Oh, Rob Thomas wrote it with him. Oh, really? Yeah. Wait till you hear the hook. What's your favorite song? 
It's so big. The hook is so big. Wow. It's a different look for him, like, yeah. vocally. Uh, you know, like, people, like, I think people forget that Mick Jagger is a great singer. Like, may- maybe you would say he's not a great singer in the conventional sense of maybe what, like, Robert Plant did. Or, like, the vocal, yeah, sheer yeah, yeah. vocal ability. But he's a great singer in just how distinctive he is, his delivery, his phrasing. Some of the things, you know, that are not always thought of, like, it's not just vocal chops. It's like how you communicate. Right. You know? But see, hearing that song, it makes me think of Matchbox 20. Yes, of course. It, it's well, kind of like Mick Jagger fronts well, Matchbox 20 yeah. or something, you know? There, Lenny Kravitz co-wrote a song on there, and Wyclef co-wrote a song on there. So Wyclef was like everywhere oh my for God. a while. Oh, my God. There was no so record good. he wasn't showing up on. You probably don't remember it. There was, well, maybe you do. Do you remember the diss track war between LL Cool J and Cannabis when that happened? Because why, okay. Sort so, of, sort of. I remember there was a, there was, you know, a tumultuous right. thing so there was there. A, there was an LL Cool J song called 4321 that Cannabis appeared on. Cannabis does the verse on 4321, but LL, after he hears Cannabis's verse, basically obliterates cannabis on the song without telling him oh my so they, goodness yeah on, on the track that he's on why on the track yeah yeah wow yeah so cannabis makes a reference to ripping the microphone tattoo off of ll cool j's arm and being like the new king or something and oh, for ll cool j's song in, in oh his verse so then cannabis puts out a song called second round knockout which is a complete diss track of ll and at the time, Wyclef was producing cannabis. So then <laughs> LL puts out another song called The Ripper Strikes Back, which is, you know, harkens back to his battles in the days in the 80s, where he obliterates cannabis, but then obliterates Wyclef as well. And I, I say that to say that Wyclef <laughs> puts out a track addressing these, and it's called What's Clef Got to Do With It? It's very meta, the whole thing. What, what, <laughs> I just what, like that Wyclef's response is like, hey, like, keep me out, out of this. this. Like, I don't want any part of this. <laughs> so good. <laughs> but, but, it's, but, like, why, but why did he get put? I don't understand. Why was he? He's just a producer, right? I mean, why? Yes. Did, yeah. Yeah, he was his producer. He produced why the was song, the shot taken at him? I didn't, Be, I, because it was just a stray. It was LOLO went after everyone. Man. We'll have to, I would love to do, we should get somebody who knows about that stuff. I would love to do an entire episode about that beef, about the cannabis. We should LL try to see cool if we just get Wyclef on here. I mean, he seems like the kind of guy that would be a <laughs> great interview. talk about it. Yeah. Be yeah. Great. I mean, who knows? You know, you, yeah, know, you never what's know. What's he doing? Yeah. So anyway, that wraps up, unless you have anything else, that wraps up Matthew Sweet, 100% fun. It is a, he's got a, a great, catalog that there is a lot to dive into i i would say this or girlfriend is is where to start but but a huge fan of of matthew sweet yeah this was this was great one of my favorite picks of yours in recent times and uh, again like an artist i've heard of and just you know never really gave it a shot and i guess that's what this what we're all about here is like it's not just i think the most exciting things are when we discover something brand new that you and i had never heard of Yep. But then the next thing is sometimes, you know, artists you may have overlooked or 
just not fully appreciated in their time. I mean, this guy, he really is just a, such a skilled songwriter and producer. It looks to me like he produces his own records too, right? And he does yeah. work for other people. So he seems to be pretty prolific. And I, I did a little bit of going through those Susanna Hoffs collaborations. Those are worth a listen to. Those I've never I, listened to them. It's really I, I listened to the Beatles cover and a couple other things. Like it's really good. They they are they just complement each other so well, and the production is just really well done. I think we did. I forget which Hanson we did a Hanson album. I don't remember if it was underneath or not. But Matthew Sweet appears briefly in there. They did a, a documentary about getting off their record label. And Matthew Sweet produced and co-wrote a song by Hanson called Underneath that came out in 04. Also worth listening to. Incredible, incredible tune. Uh, Underneath, I think, is Hanson's best album. But So there we go. Speaking of revisiting albums that I hadn't thought about in a while, Everclear so much for the for the afterglow. Everclear is a band that in my mind I had written off as the four songs that I remembered. Right. Um, that's kind of where I was at with it too. Yeah, so it was I looked at the suggestion on Twitter and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, let's do this one." So so much for the afterglow. And and same thing. Yeah. Again, I had not given this band a do cuz this is a really cool record. I was still your golden boy back before you went away. It's and I really knew a couple good. of the tunes. It's really yeah. good, pretty much start to finish. Mm-hmm. So again, same kind of thing as Everclear, at least I knew a few of the tunes, like whereas Matthew Sweet, I just kind of knew the name. Kind of a revelation on this one. So much for the afterglow. So Everclear really is the vehicle for Art Alexakis. I mean, this, this, this is his band. Mm-hmm. Always has been. So give a little backdrop on him. Born in 62 in West L.A. He was raised by a single mother, now, his father left the family during his childhood, and that became a recurring theme in his songs, and there's one song on here that's very specifically about that, and one of the best songs on here. Someone who, early in his life, went through a great deal of tragedy. His brother died of a heroin overdose. His girlfriend committed suicide, and uh, just went through a lot of emotional pain and loss early in his life. And uh, I think, you know, it's, it's something... When you read up on him a bit, he's someone who's not afraid of talking about those things, whether it's abandonment or just the grief and the sadness he's dealt with. And that's what makes, I think, songwriting such an incredible vehicle. Like, there's a catharsis. And when I listen to that song that we'll get to, you know, Father of Mine that's on here, it's just, it's really powerful. And it's not easy to channel those kind of experiences into songs, but he's someone who's really good at doing it. So, but get into his music career... It took a little time to get off the ground, but he seems like someone who was always very driven, always had the DIY kind of punk aesthetic, and someone who was always committed to touring, and they still tour pretty regularly. In the late 80s, he formed a country punk band called Colorfinger in San Francisco. They released one album, split up, didn't really take off commercially. Did you say country punk? Country punk. What is that? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think I kind of know... Sort of like like maybe the rockabilly thing, but it has oh, okay. a little more of the 
punk rock kind of edge to it. I've Got heard, it. I, I kind of understand what it is. I, I mean, sort of, you know. There's every time I've heard alt country, all I think is like, do, do we need a whole genre just to describe what Wilco is? Is that like, Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Usually there's like one or two bands that uh, the thing describes, you know. Like alt country, what, like what's this, this, what does this even mean? Country well, what's music like, that, like, like, I don't know if it was used for... Sufjan Stevens with lo-fi chamber pop. I mean, oh, never, is that never is that a whole genre really, or is that like? I think I heard someone refer to him as that, and I don't even know that he's that low. I don't even know that he's that lo-fi. No, what, I don't, I don't think that. so at all. Yeah, but I heard that said once. I was like, it sounds interesting. You know, lo-fi chamber pop. Lo-fi chamber pop. Anyway, not to interrupt. So country punk, country uh, punk band. Yep. Uh, I think I sort of know what that is, but I'm really, I'm not even sure. I think it's out of print, and I'm not even sure that you can find that music. But after that, he moves to Portland in 92 and forms what becomes the original lineup of Everclear with uh, Craig Montoya on bass and Scott Cuthbert on drums. They recorded their first demo that was then released as an EP on the local Tim Kerr label, which, have you ever heard of that label? It must have been a small short label. It's Tim slash Kerr. No, never heard of it. I'm not sure if there's a connection to Steve Kerr, maybe. Or Tim yeah. Kerr, the, the the hockey player? I, I, it's like the Tim flyer? Slash. I don't know. Yeah, it's like mm. weird. But anyway, this EP comes out on that label. Art Alex Sackis becomes very frustrated with the label. They don't do enough promotion, so he basically promotes it himself. He's the one. He sends out all the – he hires an indie promoter. He sends it out to all the media outlets and basically repurposes this record he takes those songs and adds several more songs, and those songs were repackaged as their debut album, World of Noise, which came out on Fire Records in 93. From there, they toured relentlessly throughout 94, and like I was saying earlier, they're a band that's always been committed to touring. You know, we kind of talked about this with Hanson, I remember. The bands that really achieve longevity, that truly build a dedicated audience, are always the ones that do that, that they commit to being on the road yeah. So that no matter what their chart success might be or commercial fortunes may be, if you make that connection and you keep staying out there, you're always going to have an audience. And I, I kind of see a parallel with Everclear and Hanson. If you see a 90s focus show in your area, Everclear is on that tour. Like, yeah. Like yeah. if you see, hey, it's going to be Gin Blossoms, Better Than Ezra, and the and is always ever clear yeah, every package. single time. Yeah, They're on every package tour. I think they're doing that this year. They're going out. I don't know if it's happening currently or it's going to be happening with Fastball. Yeah. It's them, Fastball, and one other band. And they have enough songs. They're great. They, they love playing, but they have enough songs that everybody knows to fill a 45 minute set on one of these tours where you know every song. You know, you're like, oh, that's a great one, that's a great one, that's a great one, yeah, and they continue to tour. And you mentioned he started like later in life. You can just sort of hear the confidence in this album that I, I think comes with somebody who's been around the block a couple of times that maybe you don't hear in other music. I don't know, maybe yeah. I'm, I'm just perceiving it that way, but it, it sort of feels like he's older. And it feels like he's been through a lot. Yeah. And he's open and willing and very adept at communicating that. But, you know, I, I think it's it's like you said, it's someone who really had success a little bit later in life. And uh, there's a benefit to that sometimes, from even from a writing standpoint. But uh, just to the build up to this record, they toured all throughout 94. They signed with Capitol Records. So now they're on the major label in 94. 
Second album, Sparkle and Fade, comes out in 95. Now, this record started having bigger commercial success. They Alt-Radio played Heroin Girl and Santa Monica in pretty heavy rotation. I remember Santa Monica. I don't remember the other one. Um, Again, I think I mostly know the few tunes from this record, but I think that was kind of the first record that started to give them some visibility. It went platinum. Yeah. And around that time... And Santa Monica, by the way, continues to this day to be... To be a staple. Uh, a rock radio staple, absolute rock radio, uh, alternative radio. Like that, that song will never. Like the, the first, you know, na 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 na. Everybody knows exactly what. Yeah, song it's, it's immediate. Yeah. It's immediate. Yeah. You reckon? Heart Spark Dollar. The Heart Spark Dollar Sign was a single as well. I think on that one from that I one. I think so. I don't yeah, know if yeah, I remember yeah. that one as clearly, but mm-hmm. um, but around this time, like Art Alex Sackis became just a very popular figure in the alternative rock world. You know, for example. In 1996, he reported on the political conventions for MTV. So he was like their sort of, you know, representative down there covering what was going on. I feel like he had a lot of visibility individually, even beyond Everclear. And it was a just a really big buildup to the commercial peak that was this record. So much for the afterglow. Goes double platinum, comes out in 97. Three top five modern rock hits, everything to everyone. I Will Buy You A New Life, which is the first song I always think about them. That's the one I remember hearing and seeing the most. And Father of Mine. Now, in the years since then, like we are talking about, they keep touring steadily out there. They've done seven more albums. Really, it's essentially his project because there have been a lot of different musicians that have come in and out of the fold, revolving personnel sort of thing centered around him. Always but, a three-piece, I think, right? Always. I, a- I think there were, generally speaking, yeah, but I think there were a few projects or stretches where he's expanded beyond that. Okay. So I think it became the kind of thing where, yes, it's a band, but it's it's basically a vehicle for him, right. you know. But this record, I think, really represents their commercial peak and unden- undeniably some of their best-known songs. We get to the Beach Boys again. The lead track, the title track, the intro track has this kind of Beach Boys kind of vocal thing that happens. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of segues into this sort of, how can I, like, it's like, the, it's pop rock, but there's like an element, a little bit of a punk element and almost a little bit of a grunge thing to it, too. This is a song about something. thing that I had never thought about until I listened to this album beginning to end. And to be honest with you, I don't even know if I ever listened to this album beginning to end in the 90s. I think the difference is the, this is so riffy. Like this album is so riffy guitar wise that I I didn't even think about. Like I I was listening to this album and I was thinking, oh man, that would be fun to play. Oh, that would be fun to play because none of it's complicated or you know, you, you wouldn't as a guitar player say like, oh, wow, like, you know, that guy's um, that guy's a virtuoso or anything. But I think like the biggest thing to me is how 
how just chunky and riffy the guitar parts are, which maybe you could associate with grunge at the time, but I think that is the, the biggest differentiator between this and something that's equally as poppy but isn't quite as riffy as this album is. Right, and uh, there's something to be said for songwriters or guitarists who can write catchy guitar parts. That's a strange thing to say. It's not yeah. even a line sometimes. Sometimes it's just that riff, and usually simple is best. You know, you were saying the, the start of Santa Monica. Yeah. It got me thinking about what you were talking about when you were in rock radio. We had this conversation a while back at, like, about what is the snippet that actually catches people. Right. It's not always the vocal hook. Mm-mm. Uh, I think you were talking about, was it was the Jack White project? Uh, you were talking about oh, like, the intro uh, that... Obviously, Seven Nation Army. Right. Everybody knows. Well, and, right, uh, right, right. Yeah. And even Icky Thump, I think, is identified by the, the first, you know few the first 10 seconds of that song is as well yeah so that's like the the real hook yeah and i think that's the case with some of these songs but then in addition to that he writes great hooks there's kind of undeniable instrumental hooks but then there's always sort of this in a lot of songs there's kind of this like heaviness or like existential feeling to some of it like even the the, some of the lyrics on this first track the, the title track we never talk about the future yeah we never talk about the past anymore we never ask ourselves the questions to the answers that nobody even wants to know. I guess the honeymoon is over. It's kind of what you were talking about. Someone who's lived and struggled and suffered and like there's a certain like wisdom or something behind a lot of his songwriting. Yeah. Yet it is like the lyrics are are by somebody who has fucking lived a life. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like almost every one of these songs is is uh, not everyone, but almost everyone is a story about a thing that actually happened to them. You know what right. I mean? And yeah. it's it's just like it's a a lot. It's a really the first two his first two albums. The first two albums are so honest. And man, like just halfway into so much for the afterglow, I was like, fuck, man, this this uh, like this album rules. Like this song yeah. rules. This album rules. And I was saying to myself, like I knew a couple of these songs, but. Like, how did I overlook this band and really just this songwriter? Because he, he really is pretty, pretty distinctive. And, and, you know, like, he has that rare ability where he can write about something very personal, very heavy, something that, like, if, you, if it was framed in a different way would be kind of a bummer for people. Right. But he can make it poppy and hooky and digestible. And that's a very unique skill to be able to write heavy songs that have like immediate you know pop connection you know there are a a lot of songs in this album that you could talk about that weren't singles that are great but just to be able to have written think about one person being able to have written everything to everyone i will buy you a new life and father of mine like you could have an entire successful music career and point to three songs as fucking awesome as those were. And he's got them all on this album. Do you know what I mean? Right, and, and it not, speaks, yeah, and it speaks to what you're saying about him being a perennial touring act, too. Yes, like how could, those those songs, which we, which we certainly take for granted, when you listen to alternative radio and they play whatever new song is, like you listen to alternative radio, basically what it is is current new alternative songs and then hits from the 90s and 2000s in between it. And a song like Everything to Everyone or Father of Mine are on so many of these stations that that have the same connective tissue as current music, but stand up to 25 years 
of play and haven't lost a uh, haven't lost a step. And then there's songs like Amphetamine. I was talking about the the like the driving guitars, which comes a- after a instrumental, which is only driving guitars. So it right. goes like that instrumental uh, El Distorto de Melodica to Amphetamine, and it's just like there's nothing like I, I I'm just so blown away by how rock and roll the uh, the album is. What, 26 late years later, it's still, yeah. or 25 years later, I should say, mm-hmm. it still really holds up. And I guess even the most recognizable song to me, I kind of didn't realize how great it was or how powerful it was. Like, uh, I Will Buy You a New Life. On the surface, it kind of feels like the quintessential Gen X mm-hmm. hit. It, like, it made me think of like Ethan Hawke in Reality Bites or something. You know, there's something about that movie that I attach to certain records, but it's way more than that. read a, a quote from him where in 2003 where he was talking about that song it was in uh, song facts and he said when Anna was a baby me and my ex-wife before we were even married we would go up to this fancy neighborhood in West Hills and look at houses we'd get some hamburgers and drive around kind of fantasize and then one day after the success of Everclear I was able to buy a house up there so he's basically talking about this dream he had and he achieved it and he talks about it in the song yeah and it it happened, right? It's it's autobiographical. It's completely autobiographical. All these uh, all these. So, uh, Justin, I'd I'd like to like publicly apologize to Everclear. For, me too. Me too. I think I underestimated what a yeah. great band they are, and uh, really something. This is a this is a record. If you overlooked it, it's worth getting into. Oh my god, yeah, and so much so that the first two or three albums blended together for me. So when they suggested so much for the afterglow, I assumed, oh, that's the one with Santa Monica on it. You know, not not to notice that there's like an entire other album full of hits and great tunes that doesn't even include their biggest song of all time. And I imagine there's a lot of gems in some of the later records. Yeah, yeah, too, I'm sure. Because they've done seven more albums. But I think it's tough for a band like this sometimes because they get pigeonholed into a certain thing. Even like you said, the package tours, they're kind of like obvious sort of package tours, certain types of bands. Right. And in some way kind of shortchanges the the image of the band because there's really some incredible lasting songs here. It shouldn't just be tethered to that time or that image, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm officially an Everclear guy now. <laughs> no, me too. Me yeah. too. Let's and be really, Art Alex Sack is really a great songwriter. It makes me want to go see them. Like I said, I know they're touring with... Uh, yeah, I hope they're not like band. tired. I hope they're not mailing it in, you know? That can happen sometimes with yeah. uh, but I feel like he seems like a guy that has like just energy to spare, you know. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. That should be an outing. Let's go see Everclear. Yeah, that's another Carl Landry uh, <laughs> Look at us getting out of our getting out of our comfort zone by picking a, the, one of the biggest 90s bands. <laughs> I'm telling you though, man, it's like, you know, uh, 
I, I want to say, I think I've overlooked the 90s as a whole. I took them for granted, yeah. you know? Yeah. I listened to, what did I listen to front to back while I was running the other day? Nine Inch Nails, Downward Spiral. And I was like, fuck, this album's awesome. That's you another band I mean? that I've not yeah. given a real shot to. And oh, should. really? Maybe I'll have to. There's a long list time. of those happening now. Everclear. Yeah. Limp Biscuit. Limp Biscuit. Um, well, it's a little different, but if we go back to the 80s, Cinderella. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 you know. yeah. Well, that's what it's for. All right. Well, I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. As I said before, if you want to suggest an album, Twitter is at CLRC Pod. You can just go to carlandrecclub.com or the Apple Podcast Reviews. We will talk to you next time. Stay free, my goose.